You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, a number of years ago, uh, I met what can only be described as the most dysfunctional family you will ever meet. The husband, he was terrible. He'd just bark orders at his wife. The wife would constantly belittle her husband. And I can tell you, the children, the children, they were the worst of all. They just didn't have a shred of respect for anyone, and especially their parents. If there was one word to describe this family, it's just that. Dysfunctional. It was as if everyone had been given their part in a play, but they all wanted someone else's part. So so the children wanted to be the parents, the wife wanted to be the husband, and the husband, well, he just wanted to be the director. I remember looking at that family very vividly and just thinking to myself, well, I guess my family's not that bad. And then I thought, thank God, I'm not part of that family. But sadly, all too many of our families, even the best of them at times, can be just like that, can't they? They can be just a bit dysfunctional. We've seen in 1 Timothy that Paul calls this, the church of God, the family of God. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is calling us to be something else altogether. He's showing us how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And surprise, surprise, God's family is defined by godliness. We are called to be not a dysfunctional family, but an otherworldly family. We're called to be a family that is a model of God's master plan for this world. And so God is calling us this day to be a model family of men and women designed by God. A model family of men and women designed by God. If you're not a Christian, can I just say, we're so happy that you're with us today. We're really glad that you're with us today, because I actually think when it comes to this, what they call the gender agenda of what it means to be a man, or what it means to be a woman, I'm convinced that actually Christians have something really compelling to offer our world, something really amazing to offer our world. You know, late last year, a British politician was asked live on radio this question, can you please tell me what a woman is? Can you please tell me what a woman is? And I think what was more surprising than just the question was the next five to six minutes of this politician struggling to provide a clear answer. You see, we live in a world where no one quite knows what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And I think that's why Jesus actually has something compelling to offer our world. He has an otherworldly vision of manhood and womanhood. But, but, because it's otherworldly, we should expect that it will be pretty countercultural. We should expect that it will be pretty controversial. I mean, right, if we're a picture of the world to come, you would kind of hope that we would actually look very different from the world today. Because if the church looks exactly like the world, well, what's the point? What, what master plan are we then modeling? You see, I, I want you to see today, friends, that God's vision for this world isn't just true. 
No, it's beautiful and it's good. God's vision of manhood and womanhood is actually liberating because it frees us to be who God designed us to be. So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God's vision for men, God's vision for women, and God's vision from the beginning. God's vision for men, God's vision for women, and God's vision from the beginning. And as we look at this picture, I want to ask you, friends, this day, if you trust in Jesus, will you trust that this news, that this master plan, that this vision is good? Will you trust that God is good? So let's start with God's vision for men. Earlier this week, surprise, surprise, I was at the gym with some of the brothers here from church. I will not tell you who, nor will I tell you where I go to the gym. It also struck me as I was there that the gym can actually be a picture of worldly manhood. You know, that, that stereotypical alpha masculinity, that, that one that's marked by toughness, strength, and maybe even just a little aggression. You know, one brother told me, Adam, the worst thing you can call a man is weak. The worst you can call a man is weak. And yet, believe it or not, God's otherworldly vision of manhood looks weak. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. That's what defines godly manhood. Prayer. If you were here last week, back in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul urged that all of us pray everything for everyone. You see, this family, Cross and Crown, we are a family of prayer. And brothers, God is calling us to step up, to take the initiative, and to lead our family in prayer. Now, if you think about it, nothing could be more countercultural. Nothing could be more otherworldly. People often joke that men have too much pride that we don't even want to read an Ikea manual to assemble a shelf. Men, they say, are independent, self-sufficient, and we want no one to help us. And yet, prayer shows that we are dependent. We are not sufficient. We need help. You see, prayer acknowledges that God is God and we are not. Prayer comes from a posture of weakness and humility. Prayer is the ultimate expression of man's submission to Christ. True masculinity, true manhood, recognizes our place before God Almighty, and it humbles ourselves as entirely dependent on Him. You see, friends, the church is not led by women and the church is not led by men. We are a family led by God. This is His household and He's calling godly men to lead this family but under His authority, to lead it in prayerful dependence on Him. Brothers, can I speak to you directly here? True masculinity prays to, depends on and submits under the Lordship of Christ. True masculinity prays to, depends on, and submits under the lordship of Christ. When Tim Chi stands up and leads us to pray, in that moment he is modeling godly manhood. He and all of you brothers are most a man not at the gym but on our knees. 
What an otherworldly vision of what it means to be a man. You know, recently there's been a lot of talk about this idea, this term called toxic masculinity. And according to the New York Times, toxic masculinity is defined as this. A set of behaviors and beliefs that include the following. Suppressing emotions or masking distress. Maintaining an appearance of hardness. Violence as an indicator of power. Think tough guy behavior. And many critics of toxic masculinity, they put it down to quote-unquote traditional masculinity ideology. And some will even attribute it to the vision of manhood that we find here in the Bible. But, but I want you to notice in verse 8 how God's vision of manhood is actually anything other than toxic. It has no place for, quote, anger or argument. No place for aggression or abuse. You see, Christian men, we do not raise fists of fury. We lift hands of holiness. We do not abuse our strength at the expense of others. We use our strength for the good of others. Christian husbands use their strength to love and protect their wives. Let me be very clear to all the men in our church. If you raise your fist against anyone, especially a woman and especially your wife, you are not a man in the eyes of God. You are diminishing yourself as a man. A man who is called to love and protect his family. You know, most men I know are not abusive. But many men I know are actually far too easily angered. Be very careful. Unrestrained anger is not a mark of strength. It is a mark of sin. You see, our world, the world says rule with power. But God says lead in prayer. Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, isn't it? When he sacrificed his royal position, when he used his infinite power to die in the place of sinners like us, God the Son models godly manhood as he submits to God the Father. He models what it means to be a godly man when he himself prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. And here it is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, brothers, Christian men pray to God, not my will, but yours be done. We pray in humble dependence on the Son, just as He prayed in humble submission to the Father. You see, Jesus is the one who models that otherworldly vision of manhood. It's Him who models men who pray in humble dependence and lead in sacrificial love. If you want to know what it means to be a godly man, look to Jesus. Look to the one who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. J.I. Packer writes this, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way nothing else is. I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way nothing else is. Brothers, by that measure of prayer, how much of a man are you?
Or, as one of our brothers here at Cross and Crown is fond of asking, are you a boy or are you a man? Because what separates the boys from the men, or the men from the boys, is actually prayer in humble dependence on God. If you're married or engaged to be married, I wonder, will you not just pray for your wife, but will you lead prayer with your wife? Brothers, will we be men of prayer? Will we initiate prayer with each other? Will we aspire to lead this church family in humble dependence on God? Prayer is the measure of a man. You know, when we live out God's otherworldly vision of manhood, we will tell a better story to the men of this world. And God will work through our prayers so that men, verse 8, in every place will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, brothers, we're to model a different kind of manhood that reflects the prayerful submission and sacrifice of Jesus. We are a model of God's master plan for men in every place. Well, Paul now turns his attention to our sisters here in God's family. And in verses 9 to 12, we see God's vision for women. And just like his vision for men, I want to tell you that it's countercultural and it is otherworldly. It does two things it casts a vision of true beauty and it casts a vision of true value. True beauty and true value. You know, I'll never forget it. I was in high school at the time, and one of my friends, she was deeply depressed. I remember she said to me, Adam, everyone at school just expects me to be beautiful, to wear branded clothes, expensive jewelry, to fit their physique. But I just don't have that figure, and I just can't afford those clothes. And it was actually really heartbreaking because if you knew this sister, you'd know just how beautiful she is. But that's the problem with worldly beauty, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem for the church in Ephesus. There were some women in this church dressing with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, and expensive apparel. Now, let me be clear. This is beyond dressing nicely or merely presentably. No, this beauty is entirely self-focused. It's designed to show off their looks, to flaunt their wealth and attract attention. But I'll tell you what, if that's worldly beauty, I have to think, what an insecure way to live. What a remarkably oppressive way to live. Because physical beauty never lasts. With time, it will fade away for all of us. But godly beauty will never fade. It will shine brighter with every passing year. You see, godly beauty isn't about how you look. It's about who you are. Modest, decent, and with good sense. Verse 9 tells us that godly beauty is displayed in good works. And good works we know which reflect God's work in giving His Son to die for the sins of the world. That's the greatest work of all. Do you see that God wants Christian women to be marked by a beauty that is otherworldly? A beauty which reflects God himself. True beauty reflects God's beauty. 
You see, godly women dress in such a way that people aren't distracted by them, but attracted to God. And when we gather as a church family, God wants the brothers here to pray in such a way that it reflects Jesus' submission. And he wants our sisters to dress in such a way that it reflects Jesus' goodness. Do you see that? God created women to be a mirror of his beauty. I mean, what an otherworldly vision of womanhood. And can I say to the sisters here in our church family that yours is a beauty of the world to come. God is inviting you to value true beauty, to serve others just as Christ served us and gave his life as a ransom for many. And I want to assure you that beauty, that will never fade. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. You know, one of the great lies of our world, one of the great untruths that we believe, is that our work defines our value. There was a time where we told women, you can have it all, the family and the career. But now, because our work defines our value, we tell the women of the world, you must have it all that you are what you do. And men and women are afflicted by this as well, aren't we? To make matters worse, we monetize our value by then only esteeming work that is paid. So if a woman makes partner, it's immediately a success. But if she quits to be a stay-at-home mum, some part of us thinks, what a waste. And it's because we define our value by our paid work. But what begins as this worthy desire to liberate women actually becomes an oppressive worldview that tells women and that tells us all, you must be what you do. You are what you do. And that's the air that we breathe. That's the culture in which we live. And it's because we look at everything through that lens that we then read verses 11 and 12 as an attack on the value of women. You see, we read these words... I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And we immediately misread, I do not value a woman more than a man. But that's not what this verse is saying. And that is not what God is saying. God values you far more than what you do. He values you for far more than what you do. See, the world says you are what you do. But God says you are who I created you to be. Sisters, your true value is in God's good design. This is God's otherworldly vision for women. Verse 11, He wants you to learn. He wants you to learn. You know, it's tragic that women actually make up more than two-thirds of the world's 796 million illiterate people. And it's a radically good thing that organizations like the Malala Fund are fighting to give 130 million girls around the world an education. You don't have to be a Christian, and we can recognize that that is good. Because we want young girls and women everywhere to learn. And while Islam will segregate women from men and Allah, Jesus invites women to sit with him, to be his disciples, and to learn his word. 
What a wonderful privilege that God wants you to learn his word, to read it deeply and to know him better so that in your good works, you might display the goodness of Jesus. Sisters, God has created you intelligent, smart and able because he wants you to learn his word so that you might reflect his beauty. Do you remember that dysfunctional family that I met? You know, the only way that that family will work is if the husband plays the husband, if the wife plays the wife, and the children finally learn that they need to be the children. They need to all let each other play their equally important and equally different part in the family. And that's what Paul means when he writes, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Let me be very clear. He's not saying that a woman must not speak at all. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that just like men, we all need to play our equally important and equally different part in this family. That God wants godly men to lead his family by teaching his word. Now let me be very clear, that's not every man, but only godly men who are able to teach. The men that we recognize as pastors and elders and leaders of this church. That's why in verse 12, Paul writes, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. It's definitely not because women are less valuable or capable. But it's because he wants pastors and elders to be godly men who lead this family in sacrificial love. And he's asking the sisters in our family to let these godly brothers play their part. Dear sisters, if a brother demands that you submit to him purely on account of him being a man? Don't. He's proven his unworthiness to lead. God invites you to a joyful submission to a godly husband in the home and godly pastor elders in the church. That's where God has placed all of us to flourish. And that's why here at Cross and Crown, we reserve that office of pastor, elder, and the task of preaching to godly men. We don't do it because men are more valuable or capable. God knows so often we're not. We do it because we are at our best when we are as God created us to be. We are at our best when we are as God created us to be. God is calling godly men to lead as pastors, elders and preachers and he's calling godly women to play an equally important and equally different role but you know when women play their part in God's master plan I want to give you an insight into the sort of things that we see them doing in the Bible we see them witnessing to the resurrection we see them bankrolling gospel ministry we see them serving alongside Paul we see them praying and prophesying we see them passing the gospel on to children and grandchildren and we see them discipling younger women to reflect the beauty of Jesus my gosh there is an endless supply of ministry for sisters in our church to do in, in our church family women lead singing prayers and the Bible reading they co-lead BLTs and ministry teams and serve as deacons and we want to encourage as a church, sisters as well as brothers, to consider serving God full-time in paid gospel ministry. We want to train women for God's mission in the world. And maybe that's you. Sisters, God is calling you to learn in quiet submission. 
to study the scriptures, to know God better, to reflect his beauty. Because your value is not in your career, but in your creation. It is not in what you do for God. It is what God has done for you. And can I say, when we're comfortable with who God has created us to be, we can enjoy the freedom of playing our part in His plan. We will be free to serve God, not most, but best. Because we are at our best when we are as God created us to be. So live out God's otherworldly vision of womanhood. Tell a different story to the world around you. Be a model of God's master plan for women in every place. We've seen God's vision for men. And we've seen God's vision for women. And now Paul wants us to see God's vision from the beginning. Because through Jesus, God is actually restoring men and women into the family that we were always meant to be. In verses 13 to 15, Paul gives us a picture of not just the world as it once was, but of the world as it will one day be. We are projecting an image of the world to come. So what does Paul do? He starts all the way back in Genesis 2, before sin entered and corrupted this world. You see, in the beginning, God is like that manager who appoints Adam the team captain of humanity to represent God on the playing field of this world. But what good is a captain without a team? And so God creates Eve to be Adam's deputy, his necessary ally, his helper, without whom he would be absolutely helpless. And together, Adam and Eve are the perfect team. They share that beautiful dynamic of Adam leading and Eve helping. Together, they represent God on the playing field of this world. That, that's what Paul means in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's saying that they're both equally important. I mean, what good is a captain without a team? But they have different positions on the field. But, like the best of them, it isn't long before this team starts to fracture. Just like that dysfunctional family I met, everyone wants to play someone else's part. So, instead of submitting to Adam and Eve as God's team in the world, the serpent, creation, rebels against and deceives the woman. Instead of helping Adam as the captain, Eve rebels against and leads him into sin. And instead of leading Eve to represent God in the world, Adam drops the ball and allows her to lead them away from God. And the upshot of it, the upshot of it all is that what was once the A-team now rebel against their manager and play for the other team against him. You see, in verse 14, Paul isn't saying that Adam didn't sin. No, if Eve's sin was to be deceived by creation and lead the team into transgression, then Adam's sin was to fail to lead the team at all. You see, what we find here is this total inversion of God's master plan. That, that once beautiful dynamic of leading and helping is now replaced by this vicious cycle of ruling and rebelling. And we see that everywhere in our world today, don't we? We see it in men ruling over women with brutality and cruelty. 
And we see it in women rebelling against men with competition and control. And the playing field of this world now becomes a battleground between men, women and creation. For men, their work becomes difficult. And for women, their childbearing becomes painful. As judgment for their sin, God curses the very tasks which He primarily entrusted to men and women. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. Because in Ephesians 5, we see that through Jesus, God is putting the team back together. He's reversing the effects of sin. He's restoring the order of creation. And He is recreating men and women to be everything that we were meant to be. In Jesus, God is saving men and women from the curse of sin. I think that's what Paul is saying in verse 15. I'll tell you what he's definitely not saying. He's definitely not saying that bearing children is how a woman gets saved by God. That's clear. But I think he's saying that if a woman continues in faith, love, and holiness, if she, just like any man, trusts in Jesus, she will be saved, that is, carried through the curse of sin. So, just as Noah was saved through the flood which judged the world, the Israelites were saved through the Red Sea which judged the Egyptians, so too are now women saved through childbirth, which is the, or the pain of childbirth, which is the curse of sin on women. You see, God is putting this world to rights. There is hope for our world. There is hope for men and women in every place because God is restoring this world through Jesus. In Jesus, God is transforming that vicious cycle of ruling and rebelling into this beautiful dance of sacrifice and submission. Men leading in sacrifice, just like Jesus sacrificed His life for us. And women submitting in humility, just like the church submits to and joyfully receives the love of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, God has this otherworldly vision of manhood and womanhood. And we are a family that is to be a model of that master plan. We are a picture of the world as it once was. We are not a picture of the world as it now is. And we are a picture of the world as it will one day be. A world in which men and women are once again that perfect team that represents God on the playing field of this world. You know, this might be the very first time that you've engaged with God's master plan for men and women. And if it is, my guess is you might be feeling just a little bit overwhelmed. Because all of us breathe the air of this world. And that can make it hard for us to read this passage for what it says. And it can make it hard for us to read this passage and think it actually good. But this is a picture of the world as God created it. And it's a picture of the world as God is redeeming it. And when we live out this reality, what we're doing is we're casting a vision of the world to come. We're inviting men and women in every place to join us as God renovates this world and transforms us to be everything that we were created to be. You see, we the church are God's gospel family. And just like the gospel message, 
this vision of manhood and womanhood, it's actually not that hard to understand. It just can be really hard to accept. But just like the gospel, once we accept it, we will enjoy the riches of God's grace. So here's my question. Will we trust that God's master plan for men and women is not just true, but because it's true, it's beautiful and it's good? Will we show the world God's good design for men and women in this gospel family? Let me pray. Good God of creation, open our eyes to see your beautiful vision for men and women. A vision of sacrifice and submission. A vision of your love for us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.